There are lots of conspiracy theories surrounding the Titanic, the ship that was deemed unsinkable. Some say it was designed to sink. Others believe it never actually sank at all. If you like to concentrate on controversies, coincidences, and cover-ups, you'll love the thrilling podcast series, Conspiracy Theories. Every week, question official narratives and re-examine what you know. Follow Conspiracy Theories free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. On April 10, 1912, the RMS Titanic was finally ready to set sail from its dock in Southampton, England. Nearly 900 feet long and 25 stories tall, the luxurious passenger liner was years in the making, advertised to be larger than even the world's tallest building. Friends and families of the passengers gathered on the docks, bidding their loved ones farewell. They came from all walks of life, rich, poor, white-collar, blue-collar, it didn't matter. The ingenuity of the Titanic was in its many levels of accommodation, perfect to suit anyone's budget and meet anyone's needs. The excitement in the air was palpable. Many had one-way tickets to America and were on the brink of a new life. They were riding a brighter future. Nobody could have predicted that in just under five days, the RMS Titanic would sink to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. More than half of its guests would lose their lives. And yet, about 700 miles away from Southampton, John Pierpont Morgan sat in a suite at the Aix-les-Bains Resort in France. The Wall Street tycoon, whose company owned the White Star Line, responsible for building and operating the Titanic, was ticketed to be aboard the ship's maiden voyage that day. Supposedly, he fell suddenly ill and couldn't make it. But perhaps J.P. Morgan wasn't sick at all. Maybe he just knew something that everyone else didn't. The unsinkable ship was destined to fail. He made sure of it. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our first episode on the RMS Titanic. On April 15, 1912, the British passenger liner, deemed unsinkable by its creators, sank to the depths of the Atlantic Ocean after colliding with an iceberg. This week, we'll explore how and why the Titanic was built in the first place. Then, we'll cover its short journey at sea as we examine the many shortcomings that caused roughly 1,500 people to lose their lives. 
Next week, we'll explore three of the most popular conspiracy theories surrounding the tragic events of the Titanic, including one that says it never actually sunk. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The history of sea travel is dominated by its most practical applications trade, fishing, and warfare. Even as emigration from Europe to America exploded in the 1800s, the transatlantic voyages were focused on efficiency as modes of transportation, one-way trips. But shortly before the turn of the 20th century, there became a demand for leisurely sea travel. It was the beginning of the cruise ship industry. Setting sail on the open sea no longer meant months of rigor and meager supplies. It could be a vacation— and even practical journeys to America could be done in style. One of the pioneers of the industry was 27-year-old Edward Harland. In 1858, he purchased a holding in a shipyard in Belfast, Ireland for 5,000 pounds, roughly the equivalent of more than 700,000 U.S. dollars today. With the help of a man named Gustav Wolf, Harland's business became a success. They operated as free agents, contracted to build boats for various shipping companies around the world. In 1861, Harlan brought on Wolfe as his partner and soon established Harlan and Wolfe Limited. As business boomed, the two men recognized the growing trend of leisurely sea travel and invested in a British shipping company that was a pioneer in luxury, White Star Line. The founder of White Star Line was a man named Thomas Ismay, and as Harlan and Wolf sought to begin a relationship with the company, their business entered a mutually exclusive agreement with Ismay. Harlan and Wolf Limited would not build for any rivals of White Star Line. At the time, the industry was overwrought with competition. In order for any business to compete, they had to lower their prices. As they did, Profit margins grew thinner and thinner, making it difficult for any company to thrive. Enter John Pierpont Morgan. The investment banker and financial executive already headed a business conglomerate that dominated Wall Street. He understood uncompromising competition better than most. It wasn't that the cruise line industry wasn't worth its weight in gold. It was just that the profits were being dispersed between too many companies. So he did what he did best. He set out to create a monopoly. He purchased a slew of smaller shipping companies until he owned a small oceanic empire. Only one thing was missing, a prize jewel. So in 1902, he set his sights on purchasing the biggest shipping company there was, the British Cunard Line. But even magnates like J.P. Morgan can't always get what they want. His proposal was rejected. Cunard Line had just received a loan for the equivalent of $400 million by the British government. So, J.P. Morgan shifted his attention to the company's main rival, the White Star Line. Although the actual figure has been lost to history, it's said that Morgan offered White Star Line 10 times what they made in a given year. 
Still, Morgan was forced into a long negotiation. Not to be made a fool of, Morgan set out to destroy his competitors. His vessels may have been smaller, but he made sure they were cheaper. He drove his prices as low as they could possibly go, charging passengers the meager sum of two pounds for a one-way voyage across the Atlantic. That's still only about $300 today. His company became something of a fast-food alternative. A ticket to ride may have meant sacrificing quality in terms of space and accommodations, but it was a shockingly affordable price for a chance at a new life in America. In order to compete, White Star and Cunard dropped their prices as well. But their pockets weren't as deep as Morgan's. Their business model couldn't sustain the changes. Soon, White Star Line's profit would evaporate, and they wouldn't be able to commission Harland and Wolf for new boats. In the end, Morgan got what he wanted. One of the leaders of Harland and Wolf, William Peary, persuaded the chairman of White Star Line, Bruce Ismay, to finally sell. Negotiations ended at a value of $32 million, which would shake out to more than $900 million today. With White Star added to his portfolio, Morgan now owned a majority of transatlantic shipping lines. To celebrate, he renamed his business the International Mercantile Marine, or IMM. And Bruce Ismay kept his job as chairman for White Star. But it didn't take long for Ismay to realize that working for Morgan meant pressure. IMM hadn't turned any significant profit yet. And its biggest competitor, Cunard Line, was planning to build two more ships, the Lusitania and the Mauritania. Each would be capable of reaching speeds of about 30 miles per hour, far faster than anything on the market. Later that year, William Peary had an idea for how Ismay could impress Morgan and outperform their competitors. If they couldn't be faster, they might as well be more stylish and comfortable. He developed plans for new ships. They included athletic courts, saunas, elevators to take guests from floor to floor, swimming pools, a Turkish bath, even high-end restaurants. But they wouldn't limit their customer base to the wealthy elite. They would include lodging for second- and third-class customers, too. Accommodations for the lowest class, called the steerage, were as unprecedented as those for first. On other ships, third-class passengers typically didn't have a place to sleep. They'd remain standing for the entire journey, which could last up to a week. But on the Titanic, third-class rooms were reminiscent of hostels or dormitories, with multiple beds in each room. Affordable, basic comfort. In 1908, Peary's plans for two ships, the Olympic and the Titanic, were approved. They were almost exact duplicates to be built in tandem. But J.P. Morgan made it clear that he wouldn't personally invest any more money in White Star, so Ismay directed the company to issue additional stock shares to raise the necessary funds for the luxury liners. In 1909, Harland and Wolf began construction on both ships as planned. They weighed over 40,000 tons and spanned more than 900 feet, 100 feet longer than Cunard's Lusitania and Mauritania. But in order for Harland and Wolf to meet their strict budget line, 
they had to sacrifice and compromise on the ship's original visions, all in the name of luxury. For example, early plans for the Olympic included 48 lifeboats. Over time, that number dwindled to 20. This provided more deck space for the first-class passengers to enjoy. Too many lifeboats were an eyesore anyway. The Titanic had 16 watertight compartments positioned around the outer part of its hull, covering any surface area that rested below the waterline. If water breached any individual compartment, a watertight door could be sealed shut to prevent further damage and contain flooding. Theoretically, on any given day, four compartments could malfunction or be damaged, and the ship would still not sink. They were the latest innovations in safety. But on the day it sank, the iceberg damaged as many as six of the Titanic's compartments, causing the ship to take on more water than its builders had anticipated. And the crew soon realized that they'd been lied to. The compartments weren't watertight at all. Coming up, the Titanic sets sail. Now, back to the story. In the early 1900s, the Titanic was built in tandem with a sister ship, the Olympic. In a fiercely competitive market, the two passenger liners were meant to lead the shipping industry in luxury, comfort, and safety. The morning of Wednesday, April 10, 1912, was mostly overcast. 39-year-old Thomas Andrews had been on board the Titanic for hours, preparing for the arrival of its first guests. He was the managing director and chief designer for the company that built the vessel, Harland and Wolf. He had spent the last week running safety tests to assure everything ran smoothly. The Titanic's departure was already three weeks behind schedule. Her sister ship, the Olympic, had experienced a number of setbacks that required the attention of most of Andrew's laborers. And so, on the day of its maiden voyage, some say that finishing touches were still being added, even as guests boarded. Door hinges and handles were being screwed in. Bouquets of flowers were brought on board to disguise the smell of fresh paint and varnish applied just hours before. Notices detailing where life jackets were located were allegedly forgotten altogether. But nothing could stop the 2,200 passengers and crew members from shipping off. Financially, the trip needed to happen. Third-class passengers might have made up the majority of those on board, but it was the first-class passengers that made the voyage a star-studded event. Among them was 48-year-old millionaire John Jacob Astor IV. The businessman and real estate developer was returning from a honeymoon in Europe with his new wife, 18-year-old Madeline Astor. During their trip, the couple discovered they were pregnant. John wanted to return to New York quickly in order to write his child into his will. They were joined on board by their friend, Margaret Molly Brown. Like all first-class passengers, Astor was greeted with refreshments in a white room dripping in marble. Stewards and stewardesses escorted each of the prestigious guests to their cabins. On the upper decks, a minimum of three outfit changes were required for each day. One for breakfast, one for afternoon tea, and a black tie outfit for dinner. Men would end each day smoking in the parlor, while the women gathered to listen to the orchestra in the lounge. 
Other first-class passengers included 67-year-old Isidore Strauss and his wife Ida. Strauss was a former New York congressman and co-owner of Macy's department stores. They had originally planned to return home aboard the Olympic, but that voyage was postponed. Also on board was White Star Line's chairman, Bruce Ismay. But for him, the journey was strictly business. He had to put a face to the White Star Line on this maiden voyage. At a few minutes past noon, the Titanic set sail. But it wasn't exactly smooth. Before it even left the port, the Titanic came dangerously close to sideswiping a nearby boat that had come loose from the dock. After the momentary delay, they were, once again, bound for Cherbourg, France. In France, they were set to pick up more passengers, but the near mishap during its launch made them a couple hours late, which meant the crew spent a fair amount of its maiden voyage attempting to make up for lost time. Two days into the journey on Friday, April 12th, the captain of the Titanic, Edward Smith, ordered the crew to open up another boiler to increase speed. It seems that he wanted to test just how fast the Titanic could travel. At 62, Smith was a highly revered captain, and rumor was that he would captain the White Star Line's latest and greatest endeavor, the Britannic, the following year. If he arrived in New York City early, that would surely make headlines. Two days later, on Sunday, April 14th, the Titanic was indeed ahead of schedule. But Smith received a telegram from a nearby ship. Apparently, there were two large icebergs blocking their path. How detailed the telegram was in regards to the icebergs and their distance relative to the Titanic is unclear. It was lost along with the ship. But we know that the Titanic continued on full steam ahead. In fact, Smith increased its speed that Sunday. Theoretically, this might have been to hurry around the icebergs. Like passing an 18-wheeler on a highway, he might have believed that shortening the period of time spent in proximity to the icebergs would limit the amount of risk. They'd reach safety faster. Then, at approximately 11.40 p.m., a lookout in the crow's nest of the Titanic spotted the iceberg, previously masked by darkness. It was only about 1,500 feet ahead of them. Frightened, the man rang the ship's warning bell three times, signaling the crew that evasive action was required and fast. One of the Titanic's officers abruptly steered the wheel clockwise, redirecting the ship's stern to the left in an effort to avoid a head-on collision. For a moment, it appeared that the liner might miss the iceberg, but they were going too fast. The right side of the Titanic made contact with the iceberg. Because of the ship's size, the collision was relatively imperceptible. Many passengers slipped right through it. One later compared the sensation to a ship passing over about a thousand marbles. Immediately after they struck the iceberg, the Titanic briefly slowed to about half speed. Then, Captain Smith ordered the engines to be stopped. Something was wrong. A deafening silence filled the ship. 
and it was the silence that caused many of the passengers to stir. But their initial reaction to waking wasn't fear. It was excitement. Adults and children of all ages tossed on their dressing gowns to see what all the commotion was about. Meanwhile, Captain Smith ordered Thomas Andrews to check on the status of the ship's compartments. He raced to the lower decks, passing a mailroom that was already flooding with freezing water. Bags of letters were being tossed about by the force of the waves. Andrews ran to investigate the supposedly watertight compartments which were designed to save the ship. If the mailroom was flooding, something had to have gone terribly wrong. And then Andrews saw it with his own eyes. At least five of the 16 compartments had been compromised, one more than the ship could handle, and none of them appeared to be watertight. In a matter of minutes, the rest would be flooded. Judging from the amount of water rushing in, nearly one-third of the Titanic's length had been torn open. It was no longer a matter of if the Titanic would sink, but when, and time was clearly not on their side. Up next, more than 2,200 people's lives are at stake, but there are only 20 lifeboats. Now back to the story. At 11.40 p.m. on Sunday, April 14, 1912, an iceberg was spotted ahead of the RMS Titanic. Despite prior warnings of ice, the Titanic was traveling at a speed much too fast to prevent a collision. Within a matter of minutes, the front right side of the passenger liner struck the iceberg, which tore a hole in the ship's hull. The Titanic's captain, Edward Smith, radioed for help as its designer, Thomas Andrews, assessed the damage below deck. One look and he knew they were doomed. It was a nightmare. As Andrews rushed to tell Captain Smith about the direness of their situation, confused passengers stopped him. They wanted to know what was happening. Andrews was torn. On one hand, everyone on board deserved to know the truth. On the other hand, the truth could stir up a panic and make everything worse. Allegedly, the words he spoke were, quote, All of you get what you can in the way of clothes and come on deck as soon as you can. She is torn to bits below. Just after midnight, most of the third-class passengers still in steerage were ankle-deep in ocean water. It was 28 degrees Fahrenheit, only two degrees lower than the temperature of the air. When Andrews arrived to tell Smith what was actually happening below, the seasoned captain reportedly asked the designer what their time of death was. Andrews thought they had one hour, 90 minutes at best. As each compartment flooded with water, the weight at the front of the vessel got heavier. It would soon pull the nearly 50,000-ton ship to the bottom of the ocean. If any lives were going to be saved, swift action was required. The captain ordered all lifeboats on board to be filled with passengers. Stewards and stewardesses were instructed to go door to door, waking up guests. Everyone on board was told to dress warm, put on a life jacket, and come to the top deck. 
Because the ship hadn't posted notices, Andrews ran around informing the panicked passengers where life preservers were located, under their beds and on top of their wardrobes. But not everyone was as urgent as Andrews. Ida and Isidore Strauss were sleeping in their first-class stateroom when they heard the commotion outside their chamber. Unfortunately, they were located on the right side of the ship, just above the damage inflicted by the iceberg. Ida put on a robe to investigate. As she stepped outside, a steward informed her of the accident. Then Ida slowly ventured down the hallway to her maid's room. She told the maid to wake her husband's valet. The 67-year-old man would need help getting dressed. She then calmly returned to her suite to dress herself. She put on two coats, her wedding band, leather gloves, and packed a small bag of jewelry before walking to the top deck. It's possible that Ida, like many passengers, wasn't concerned that the Titanic would sink. She had been told it couldn't. In an effort to keep passengers calm, the crew opened up the first-class lounge to their esteemed guests. The wealthiest among them drank coffee, sipped scotch, and socialized as an orchestra played and the Titanic sank. One passenger described the scene as a fancy dress ball in Dante's hell. But not everyone could revel in distraction. Captain Smith needed to figure out how to evacuate safely with just 16 lifeboats in four small collapsible vessels. Combined, they could carry just about half of the 2,200 people on board. Allegedly, Smith told his crew, quote, do your best for the women and children and look out for yourselves. Around 12.30 a.m., about an hour after the iceberg was first spotted, many of the lifeboats had been uncovered and preparations begun. The unspoken rule was exactly what Smith had asked for. Women and children would go first. Fifteen minutes later, the first 65-person lifeboat was lowered, boarded, and released. But only 28 people were on it. Every unfilled seat meant one more life that couldn't be saved. And yet still, some people, like millionaire John Astor, were apparently weary of the panic. He didn't think the lifeboats were necessary. The Titanic was supposed to be one of the safest ships in the world. Attempting to leave would only unnecessarily traumatize his pregnant wife, Madeline. The couple remained in the lounge as others fled for their lives. It wasn't until the front of the Titanic dropped deep enough to raise the stern out of the water that reality settled in. The impossible was happening. They were sinking. Only then did Astor see to it that Madeline boarded a lifeboat. He remained behind, along with other men forced to separate from their families. Astor's friend, Margaret Brown, was not so relaxed. She had already witnessed several lifeboats leave without enough passengers on them. Margaret made it her mission to save as many people as she could. She remained calm and organized, instructing fellow passengers on where to sit, squeezing them in where necessary. Though women and children went first, class undeniably factored into access. Even prior to anything going wrong, third-class passengers weren't allowed on the top deck. Some believe that, as the Titanic sank, 
Many were restricted access to the safe upper decks and to the lifeboats. Though the truth behind that discrimination has been debated, the fact still remains. Members of first class were 44% more likely to survive. And as the odds of survival lessened for those still on board, a frenzy gave way. Fights broke out over life jackets. Men and women attempted to jump onto filled lifeboats below. Some even dove off the deck into nothing, braving the freezing temperatures of the water. They looked for a door, a table, anything to stay afloat. It's not clear when, but at some point, Margaret Brown was placed on a lifeboat herself. It supposedly had less than 30 people on board. She pleaded with the officer in charge to turn around and help those stuck in the freezing waters, but he was afraid they might capsize the boat as they tried to get in. He even threatened to remove Mrs. Brown if she continued to ask. But later that night, Margaret staged a coup. She grabbed an oar away from the officer and threatened to push him overboard if he fought her. She was going to rescue more people, and she did, pulling anyone she could reach from the frigid water. Meanwhile, as the clock struck 1 a.m. on the Titanic, most of the third-class accommodations were completely submerged. More than 500 of the 700 passengers in steerage died. Ida Strauss climbed into lifeboat number eight, As she did, she noticed her husband, Isidore, was not following. She asked him if he was coming, but Isidore shook his head. No, he would board last. Other passengers in her lifeboat begged Ida to stay, but she didn't. She climbed out of the boat and returned to her husband's side. She told him, where he goes, so does she. Several accounts claim that she then removed her fur coat and handed it to her maid, Ellen. She insisted that the maid go in her place. Ellen wasn't one to argue with directions, so she boarded the lifeboat. As the situation grew more dire, the lifeboats couldn't depart quick enough. Some were even released on top of the others below. Then, just after 2 a.m., the last lifeboat left the Titanic. Roughly 1,500 people either remained on board or were already lost to the icy waters. Just over 700 people had escaped. Among those still on board were Captain Edward Smith and designer Thomas Andrews, both of whom made decisions that likely contributed to the ship's tragic end. But perhaps one of the men most responsible for the Titanic was the chairman of White Star Line Shipping Company, Bruce Ismay, who managed to survive. Bruce Ismay allegedly helped load the lifeboats at first, but once his side of the boat was clear of women and children, he saved himself. Tommy Andrews, on the other hand, was last seen throwing anything he could overboard so that those in the water had something to hold on to. Shortly before 2.30 a.m., The weight at the front of the ship became too much for the Titanic. She snapped down the middle. Two and a half hours after colliding with an iceberg, the unsinkable Titanic was swallowed whole by the ocean. Another ship, the Carpathia, had received the Titanic's original distress calls, 
but it would be a few more hours before it reached the wreckage. However, once it did, the passengers of the Carpathia welcomed the Titanic survivors aboard. They made it to New York alive, but the 706 survivors still had questions. Namely, how could this possibly have happened? Several investigations were launched to determine what caused the tragedy and how it could be prevented in the future. One was even conducted by a subcommittee of the United States Senate. Dozens of survivors testified. Officially, no one was found at fault. But many skeptics believe that there is more to the story than a simple accident. To this day, the sinking of the Titanic is one of the largest maritime disasters in the 20th century. There has to be some explanation for why the unsinkable happened. So next week, we'll explore three of the most popular conspiracy theories surrounding the ill-fated ship. Conspiracy theory number one. American businessman J.P. Morgan purposefully sank the Titanic to eliminate his business rivals, the other shipping industry millionaires on board. Conspiracy theory number two. The Titanic never set sail. The ship that sank that day was actually the Titanic's sister ship, the Olympic. The owners knew that the Olympic would soon sink and let it sail under a new name, hoping to commit insurance fraud. And conspiracy theory number three. The famed passenger liner was cursed by an ancient Egyptian mummy hellbent on wreaking havoc. Maybe the truth behind the Titanic isn't quite as clear as history suggests. Maybe a darker reality lurks right below the surface. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of The Titanic. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Jenna Lennon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.